0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. Good morning and thanks for joining us here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we're going to be talking medical headlines. So I like to peruse the lists of articles that come out on a multitude of different kind of health and wellness platforms because I know my patients are going to be asking me these questions. They're going to see it out in uh, in the headlines and are going to want to know what the skinny is on those kinds of things. And so I like to compile a list of those and then go through them with you guys as well. Because headlines can be misleading, right? We've talked about that before, especially <clears throat> in relationship to... Um, Uh, Headlines that may quote a study. And we did a whole show on uh, how you interpret medical studies and how we grade the evidence that comes from those things. And if you are interested in learning more about that, you can always check out that episode um, by downloading our podcast. You just search for Southern Remedy wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, But today we're going to start to dig through some of the uh, up and coming headlines that are out there. But if you have a question or a comment for us, you can always email us fit at mpbonline.org. All right, we're going to start with probably one of the most uh, polarizing topics in nutrition, and that is artificial sweeteners. So there's been a lot of movement in the news recently about uh, guidelines that have or position statements that have come out by the World Health Organization, and what that means in terms of whether we should or shouldn't be using artificial sweeteners. And I'm going to start with um, the first one that came out back in May that looked at artificial sweeteners and weight loss. And so the WHO put out a rather lengthy, I think it was 90-page press release or a um, position statement about that. And then, of course, the press release was much shorter, about a page long. And so the details actually probably lived somewhere between the two of those things. And what the headlines were saying is that artificial sweeteners don't help with weight management or with weight loss. And so that can be... um, kind of a difficult thing to hear especially if you're someone who routinely uses artificial sweeteners or maybe your health care provider has talked to you about switching from regular soda to diet soda or any of those um, you know strategies to reduce your added sugar intake and you know it all boils down to the fact that not everything should taste sweet okay so the reason that it's um been linked to not being helpful for weight loss and again guys remember when I talk about any kind of thing like this I'm talking about for the general population right there's always going to be someone who has found success with a particular strategy and maybe switching from coke to diet coke they did lose you know a, a, a chunk of weight but at a population level, or for the general public, when we look at artificial sweeteners, while they may initially produce some weight loss, it usually is not sustained. And that goes back to the not everything should taste sweet. So artificial sweeteners, based on, you know, there are a plethora of them. There are your um, sweet and Lowe's, your Equals, your Splenda's, your um, Stevia or Trevia, those are the the more common ones that are out there right now. But those, depending on which brand, are about 200 to 700 times sweeter than actual sugar. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that when we switch completely from sugar to one of these artificial sweeteners, that our taste buds start to expect things to taste hyper sweet, right? So to taste sweeter than they are. And so if you're trying to reduce your overall intake of sweet things, and you start to use a substitute that is sweeter than sugar, your taste buds are kind of, always looking for that sweetness there that way when you eat something that is sweet like fruit you may not perceive it or your taste buds don't perceive it as sweet enough and so you don't like it as much and so that's kind of one of the the theories that has been kind of posited as why these things don't necessarily lead to sustainable weight loss Right? The other thing that should be mentioned in regards to this particular um, position statement that came out is it did not speak to sugar alcohols, nor did it apply to people that already have diabetes. So if you've already got diabetes, I'm never going to make the argument that you should drink regular soda versus a diet soda when I'm trying to get control of your blood sugar. Now, would I love to see you switch to um, a water instead or you know, some other um, type of beverage that doesn't have regular sugar or artificial sweeteners in it? Um, Sure. But if I'm trying to get control of your blood sugar, and we're not going to give up soda, then I am going to recommend we go to that diet soda. But at the end of the day, With artificial sweeteners, my personal stance on it is, and what I tell my patients, is you shouldn't be using enough that it really matters, right? We shouldn't be having either regularly sugar-sweetened or artificially sugar-sweetened things at multiple points throughout our day. Right? We shouldn't be adding sugar or artificial sweetener to our breakfast, to our lunch, to our dinner, to all of our snacks, right? Because that gets back to that general notion that I just said that not everything is supposed to taste sweet and that we need to work on adding in less processed items that allow our taste buds to appreciate the range of flavors and textures and um, and sensations that food can bring, All right, now the most recent headline, and when I opened up, I opened up like several um, sites this morning, and every single one of them was leading with this particular um, statement that had something to do with aspartame and cancer. And if you've been following nutrition for a while, you'll know that about every couple years they come out and say, yeah, it's bad for you, or no, it's okay, right? So what is this new piece adding in? Well, You know, what I am a little bit afraid of with this particular um, kind of news release or headline is the fact that it has been interpreted in a variety of ways by different uh, media outlets. So all of these headlines that I'm fixing to read you all are having to do with the same release that just came out. So on one day, the title was Artificial Sweetener Aspartame Safe in Moderation, WHO Experts Say. And then the very next day, the headline was WHO Warning on Aspartame Possibly Linked to Cancer. Now, I don't know about you, but those two things do not say the same thing right? So what are we actually, what's it actually say? Uh, and then I found a couple more that were kind of pretty humorous. Um, this one says Diet Coke safe as long as you don't drink 14 cans every day. Um, and then right next to it is um, aspartame is safe in limited amounts, say experts after cancer warning. So what what is the truth here? What is and when I say truth, the best available knowledge that we have based on current available evidence, right? Evidence that is good quality. And the first thing to think about is what designation did aspartame actually get? Because there are um, kind of grades to the, the link to cancer or to being carcinogenic. So there is a category of things that are Absolutely carcinogenic to humans, right? That's where like cigarette smoke and cigarette smoking comes into play. Then there are things that are probably carcinogenic to humans. And then the the level below that is possibly carcinogenic to humans. And all of that, depending on which one of those categories it falls in, has to do with what, how strong the evidence is, right? How good the data that we have is and whether there's anything that could be affecting those outcomes. So the aspartame warning that was just put out you know, in the last week or so is falling in that possibly carcinogenic range. So the kind of lowest of those categories that you can have there. And what it is... Trying to get at is that it there absolutely could possibly be a link, but not at the range that we routinely take in. So um, the recommendation is for an acceptable daily intake of forty milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So that's one of those you know fancy medical calculations that we get thrown in things to further confuse people. But let's take um, the um, a 70-kilogram person, right, which would be somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, somewhere between 150, 160 pounds, right? Um, they would need to drink between 9 and 14 cans of of diet soda to hit that mark, right? That's where that headline that I mentioned a minute ago came from that said, you're good as long as you don't drink 14 cans, That's not entirely accurate, right? Because this is a weight based amount, right? So it does depend on how much you weigh as to where you would fall in there. But that is an excessive amount of diet soda. And I would say we shouldn't be having 14 of anything uh, during the day. I surely don't want you to have 14 regular sodas. I don't want you to have 14 diet sodas or artificially sweetened products of of any kind. These are not just soda ingredients. They're in lots of different things. Um, What it should prompt you to do is look at how you make a change to a less processed item. So not going, oh, gosh, they're saying aspartame causes cancer. I'm going to go back to drinking regular soda. That's not the messaging that we're trying to get around here. It's that we shouldn't be consuming any of these processed products in super large amounts. Right. So, you know. If you're drinking one diet soda a day, I'm gonna leave that alone, right? Like if you're seeing me in um, lifestyle medicine and you drink one diet soda a day and you are comfortable with that and you enjoy that, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna touch that, right? That's not gonna be the thing that I'm gonna, um, gonna kind of plant my flag in and make us change there. Again, it all goes back to we shouldn't be using enough of these things to really make a difference anyway. We're going to spend the next little bit of time talking about diabetes or about glucose regulation and what some of the uh, really exciting stuff from a lifestyle perspective that is is coming out about. So, The uh, headline I saw says, can diet and exercise reverse prediabetes? And I know what my immediate response was. It was yes, because I see it in clinic, if not on a daily basis, at least on a weekly basis, um, and get to see people reverse uh, chronic diseases like that. And that's so exciting for me as a clinician, because when I was going through Um, nursing school and then even nurse practitioner school, reversal of a chronic disease like that wasn't something that was really talked about. It was more about symptomatic control of things and how do we use, you know, medications and lifestyle to get, get those numbers where we want them to be and have them controlled. But as the science has expanded and grown and we've learned how to dose lifestyle appropriately and all of these things, we actually have seen reversal, meaning people are not on medicines uh, and have no kind of clinical sign of that. Disease. So in terms of prediabetes, their hemoglobin A1C number is completely normal, um, not on medications and usually for a period of time, uh, depending on the source that you look at, usually at least six months of um, having control of that um, uh, disease process. So what is pre-diabetes? Well, pre-diabetes is what a lot of people refer to as borderline diabetes. I'll have lots of patients who come in and when I'm doing their medical history and I ask about diabetes, they'll say, well, my doc said that it was a little bit borderline. So what does that actually mean? Well, the kind of official medical diagnosis would be pre-diabetes. And the way I explain it to folks is your blood sugar is too high to be completely normal, but not high enough to be in the range of full-blown diabetes, right? So that makes sense why people call it borderline. But we can measure that a couple of ways. We can look at what people's fasting blood sugar is, which is what their sugar is uh, when you haven't eaten for eight to 12 hours, usually that first thing in the morning blood sugar. We can look at Um, what we call a postprandial glucose, which is what your blood sugar is due in a couple of hours after you've eaten. Or we can look at the hemoglobin A1c, which is a three-month average of blood sugar, and it's given to us in a percentage, meaning a percentage of our red cells that have um, kind of sugar stuck to them is kind of the easiest way to think about it. And a completely normal hemoglobin A1c is less than 5.7% a reading of 6.5 and above is diabetes. So that pre-diabetes range is 5.7 to 6.4. And that's why I always talk about needing to know what your numbers are. So a lot of times this is checked at your regular wellness visit, depending on the type of insurance that you have. And we you need to know, right? You need to know what it is because if it's kind of right there on the cusp, right? Like 5.6, We want to go the opposite direction so that next year we're not moving into that prediabetes range. Or if we are in that prediabetes range, what is our um, what's our game plan in terms of, again, going the other direction and moving our glucose numbers toward a normal pattern, not toward a pattern of diabetes? Because if we do nothing, about 50 percent of people that have prediabetes will develop type two diabetes in, you know, five to 10 years. So we really want to make sure that we are addressing folks in that prediabetes range and giving them the tools that they need to reverse that. And there are uh, several different strategies. There are medications that can be used. Um, The most frequently used one is something called metformin, which if you have diabetes, you're probably very familiar with metformin. But it can also be given in the in the diabetes range to help prevent the progression to uh, f- uh, full diabetes. Or we can do lifestyle modifications or we can do both of those things together. And that just is a shared decision making between patient and provider as to which course is um, is is better there. But there's also the Diabetes Prevention Program, which is a program by the CDC. We actually have it here at at UMC that is part of our Department in Preventive Medicine. That's a year-long group program that looks at intensive lifestyle change and how that is utilized to um, reverse uh, prediabetes. So what did uh, this actual headline, what was the the take-home on those kinds of things? Well, They came to the same conclusion that I did, that prediabetes can be reversed, and there are a couple of steps that we need to have in place to help with that, right? Um, One is knowing what your number is so that you can make the best decision about um, treatment course for you um, and kind of target yourself when you're in that prediabetes range. And the second piece was that exercise piece, right? And regular physical activity. And I've talked on this show plenty about physical activity, and I've talked about the different parts of physical activity and that you can have aerobic physical activity as well as resistance physical activity. And this particular article really highlighted the fact that just having regular physical activity not only the high moderate or high intensity activity that we talk about but any physical activity can help with blood sugar and improve its management and in particular resistance exercise which if you need a refresher on that that is muscle strengthening exercise which can be in the gym right with free weights or on a weight machine it can be resistance bands It can be body weight exercises, which is what I usually start my patients with, just using your own body weight and either pushing or pulling against things. And that is crucially important in this prediabetes range because using those muscles helps to decrease insulin resistance. Or the flip that we could say is it improves insulin sensitivity. So that's kind of the key to pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes is how do we help our body use the insulin it already makes um, uh, better, right? So how do we utilize what we already have better? And one of the really cool things that it looked at was... Again, not focusing as much on the intensity of that activity, right? Not thinking about, okay, I got to get on the treadmill and go at a, you know, a four or five, six or whatever on there, or I got to go do a 5k, or I have to sweat a ton or any of these different kinds of things. It's that all movement matters and all movement counts. And that the focus really should be on that, that any movement and any decrease in sedentary behavior matters so just standing up is better for you than sitting down and that doesn't mean you have to stand up all the time right I have a standing desk at work and I don't stand at that all the time I stand some I sit some Um, it's about not having prolonged periods of sitting and you don't have to have a standing desk just get up right? So if you you know don't have very frequent breaks that you're able to take at work, and you're mostly kind of tied to a desk, just stand up and move around in your little spot for a couple of minutes. And that helps our muscles take up that extra sugar that's floating around in our bloodstream and help our insulin work better. There's also a really cool study. And you know, I always talk about The size of the study matters, right? And the smaller the number of people in it, the less kind of generalizable it is. And this was a very small study, uh, but a super fun one, uh, where it actually had people um, that uh, looked at what their blood sugar was after getting up and doing what they call um, chair stands, which does not mean stand on your rolly chair. Okay. When I first read it I was like, What are we having people do? That's not it. It's Standing up from your chair and then rising onto your tiptoes, right? So, in essence, almost like a chair squat with a calf raise, but it's just getting out of your chair and getting up on your toes and then going back down to your chair and doing those for a couple minutes. And it had significant improvement on your blood sugar levels following that. And so, those are really easy things that you can add into your day just standing up. And then maybe adding some calf raises and those types of things into your uh, kind of daily workflow if you feel like you can't go to the gym or go, um, you know, walk for 30 minutes a day, five days of the week like guidelines normally tell us. Any movement matters, right? So that's kind of my, my take on on exercise. And then I want to spend the next couple of minutes talking about um Sleep, and everybody, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that I love to talk about sleep. I also just love to sleep, but uh the science behind sleep is so um, so interesting, and there's just so many benefits to it and this latest headline that came out it says. Um, how deep sleep brain waves can impact blood sugar levels. And so, when we see the word deep sleep, what we're actually talking about, or what they are talking about in this particular um, article, is the stages of sleep that you get into, right? And so, a lot of people think we go to sleep and we go through the different stages linearly. Like we go stage one, stage two, stage three, REM, and then we stay in REM the rest of the night because there are three non-REM stages and then REM. But that is not how sleep happens. That's not what is happening during sleep. Sleep um, occurs in what we call sleep cycles. So you may go into stage one sleep, progress to stage two. You may go back to stage one, then go to two, then go to three, then go back to two, then go to three, then go to REM. And all of that together is a cycle. And one sleep cycle lasts about 90 minutes. And as you as the sleep event continues, which means your evening or day, whenever you're sleeping, as it progresses, those sleep cycles happen multiple times. And the deeper stages of sleep increase, the length that you spend in those increase during that event. And so anything that interrupts the amount of time that you spend in a sleep cycle or the amount of time you spend in a sleep event could be negatively impacting your blood sugar. And so what this particular article looked at was what happens when people get into the deeper stages of sleep how does that impact their sensitivity to their insulin and their next day blood sugar? And what it showed is a, a couple of um, kind of markers of deep stage sleep, which are s- sleep spindles, which happen on a, a, a brain scan, and slow oscillations. Both of those are markers for s- more stage three non-REM sleep improved our insulin sensitivity, and it caused a lower blood sugar the following day. So what does that mean in terms of what we put into place in our daily life? Well, it's not just about sleep duration. It's about sleep quality. Right. So sleep duration, we should be aiming for seven to nine hours of sleep per night, but it needs to be quality sleep. So sleep that is not interrupted multiple times during the night so that we get in those deeper stages of sleep. So that helps improve our blood glucose. So think about what might be waking you up. Is it that you have to go to the bathroom? Right. That's a very frequent thing. If it is, Maybe talk with your healthcare provider about some of the medicines that you're on and what time of the day you're taking those medications, and maybe moving those to low, uh, earlier in the day may help with that. Especially if it's a diuretic medication, is it noise? Right. Do you have a live on a busy street and that noise is waking you up? Then maybe we use a white noise machine or or earplugs, those types of things. Is it light? Uh, If that's the case, if it's coming from outside, uh, maybe blackout curtains or a cheaper alternative would just be an eye mask to help block some of those things out. Or do we have a sleep disorder like obstructive sleep apnea that is preventing us from staying asleep during the night? Regardless of the cause, we need to address it to help get better control of our blood sugar. So we need to be talking to our healthcare providers about that. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. And I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC. And we've been going through medical headlines today and trying to kind of help you wade through what those things actually mean. And over the break, we did have a question that came in about worry. And Kevin, you kind of had an interesting take on that and how worry impacts sleep. Tell me about that. Yeah, I find sometimes uh, it seems like it's usually kind of maybe in the early morning, you wake up And then as you try to go back to sleep, suddenly you're like, oh, it's Monday. I've got to do this and do that. And I've got all this thing that I need to work about. And, oh, can I get this project done in time and work and that sort of thing? And you just – you can't – it seems like your brain won't disengage so that you can (laughs) get back to sleep. Yeah. It's trying to problem solve, right? And interesting, an interesting piece of that is that when we sleep better, we actually problem solve better. Uh, so you're kind of in a cycle there and, and, and needing to figure out a way to, to interrupt that cycle. But worry is a very common thing that impacts people's um, sleep schedules. And a lot of times it can prevent people from falling asleep. So they'll have, um, they'll say they get in the bed, and they just can't make your brain turn off, you know, um, or, When you wake up, you start to kind of think about all the things that you have to do. And again, that one thing just kind of feeds in on itself. And I really can't stress the notion of writing things down enough in this particular case. So um, the best kind of way to do it is set aside some time. Maybe early in the evening, whatever works with your schedule, right? And just spend 15 to 20 minutes writing down maybe upcoming things that you're gonna have to do and the steps you've put in place to do that or things that you're worried about and the steps you're taking to address that, right? Um, One of our psychologists calls it scheduling time for worry. And I was like, dude, I don't need to schedule time. I worry all the time. But that's what we're getting at is really scheduling a time to let your brain focus in on how to problem solve those things. So if it's Sunday afternoon, and you're sitting down and looking at your week ahead, you know, these are the things that have to get accomplished on Monday. This is what I'm going to tackle first, or the emails I'm going to need to send to do that, or the meetings that I'm going to need to set up all of those things. So that when you wake up in the middle of the night or in the early morning hours, and you start to go down that that road of trying to problem solve, you can be like, Oh, nope, already did that already wrote it down. I've got a plan in place. And it seems like that wouldn't work. But it actually does. And so it can feel a little weird when you first start doing those things. But it really does help to train your brain that I've already dealt with that. And so now is now is sleepy time time to go back to sleep. All right, our next headline says do reading puzzles and similar activities really stave off dementia. And that is something that, you know, I've heard uh, throughout my professional career and before, like, if you want to hang on to to uh, your cognitive abilities, you need to be challenging your brain. And you need to be doing crossword puzzles and all these different kinds of things. So does it work? Um, you know, what is what is the science behind that? Well, again, I'm always going to try and find what studies are out there to look at and whether they were published in a reputable journal and those kinds of things. And there was one that was published in um, the Journal of Neurology in 2021. So a fairly recent article that looked like things like reading, playing games like checkers, puzzles, writing letters, those types of things can delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease. And they call those high levels of cognitive activity. Another study in 2022 looked at the opposite of that, right? So more passive activities or passive cognitive activities like watching television, right, um, was linked to an increase in dementia risk. So when we look at those two things up against each other, it's what we're spending our leisure time doing, right, when we're just watching TV or some kind of passive event, then that is not kind of challenging our brain in these higher cognitive skills and is associated with different rates of dementia. And I want us to make sure that we focus on that word associated with, right, not caused by, right. So these studies are not if you watch TV and not, don't read, that causes dementia. Or if you play puzzles, you don't get dementia. That's not what this is. It's just associated with either increasing or decreasing rates of that particular um, disorder that we're looking at. But all of the experts agreed that the activities we should be focusing on are what they call mental exercise And immediately I thought of a brain lifting weights, but that is not what it is. It is anything that engages multiple parts of the brain. So your brain has different lobes to it, different little regions, and there are different activities that mainly occur in those. Some of them are speech, vision, you know, tactile sensation, all of these different things. And so engaging multiple parts of the brain at once is like making your brain exercise a little bit more. And so thinking of activities that are going to incorporate multiple parts of the brain is one of the strategies that's been associated with a lower risk of dementia. And so that can be reading, it can be puzzles, it can be art, it can also just be conversation. So having a conversation with someone um, can do that. Um, But the real kind of take home message from all of this as that sitting and watching tv doesn't count as mental exercise it needs to be something that's a little bit more actively involving those different areas of the brain Um, some of the other things that you can do if you're like well i don't like puzzles they make me mad right, is finding an activity that you do enjoy. Maybe it's coloring or drawing or sketching, even if it does not look like what you think it's supposed to be. That's okay. Um, listening to music, dancing along with that music, um, word searches. That's my son, my youngest son. Um, his One of his favorite activities to do with me is word searches. So everywhere we go, we have to buy a word search book. So we have about 500 word search books that have about five pages of each one of them done because we have to get a new one everywhere we go. Um, But that counts as incorporating multiple areas of the brain and kind of exercising the brain, so to speak. Um, What we want to make sure is that it's just enjoyable and makes you think, right? And that, again, can be a hobby that you've previously enjoyed, or if you're not able to do that hobby, again, it can just be conversation with someone, and that leads me to the next study that w- or the next headline that came out, which was the impact of social isolation on cognitive health, and we had a show a couple of weeks back with um, Dr. Carl Mangum, where we talked about loneliness and social connection and how important that is in overall health and wellness. And this particular article just highlights that more, um, where there was an association between social isolation and lower brain volume. So actually, The brain getting smaller, which can be linked to some of the cognitive disorders that are out there. So, of course, it's not a causation thing, but it is associated with it. So, looking at ways to increase your social connection and decrease your social isolation is really important. And I know we've all struggled with that over the past couple of years, Um, but if you can't get out or you don't want to get out, think about who you can talk to on the phone. And I don't mean text on the phone. I mean, have a real live conversation on the telephone with, because that is an important piece of social connection as well. And I usually ask my patients, you know, who lives at the home with you? And do y'all eat together or do any activities together? And then I'll say, you know, what about any kind of groups? Do you go and you know, do you like church or book club or any of these kinds of things? How often do you go? And then I'll say, how often do you talk to family or friends on the telephone? And those are all really important um, questions to ask yourself to see if if you are interacting with people on a, if not daily basis, at least a couple of times a week of having some type of social connection um, with another human being. Because it helps your brain and helps decrease um, cognitive decline. Thanks for joining me today here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC. And we've been going through some medical headlines today. And I actually had someone send me a medical headline that was listening to the show that asked about um sweat and exercise and so i don't have the actual headline in in front of me but the notion of the headline was that you don't have to sweat to exercise and they found this very exciting because they don't like to sweat and what i would imagine it is relating to is kind of what we talked about earlier in the show which is that any movement counts right uh, there is health messaging out there based off of the 2018 guidelines for physical activity, right? That say 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity is what is needed for health benefit. And that's great messaging, but what we have found, and there have been studies that have done on this, is this can actually be demotivating to people when they think that, well, I have to get 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise to see health benefits, and there's no way I'm going to be able to do that, so I'm just not going to do any of it. And if you actually look at the science, that is just simply not true. Um, there is a steep benefit, meaning very rapidly with a short amount of exercise that occurs for folks. So yes, kind of optimal health benefits start to occur at that 150. But a drastic improvement in health occurs in that short range of I think it's less than 60 minutes a week, maybe Um, I'd have to pull that graph. But That's really exciting when you think about, I don't have to get to that 150 minutes to start to have health benefits from that. And then in terms of intensity, moderate intensity is kind of where um, your breathing is increased a little bit. You can talk to folks, but you wouldn't be able to sing. That's called a talk test. And then vigorous intensity is more where y- you kind of have to pause in between words when you're talking. You absolutely couldn't sing. And that, again, is the messaging that we've given folks is we got to get to that intensity to see health benefit. And again, it's it's just not all the all of the story. That's just not all of the story there. And so light intensity, which would be kind of what likely wouldn't make you sweat, is beneficial, right? And that can be things that are not typically seen as um, exercise. That can be going grocery shopping. That can be going window shopping. That can be doing the dishes or vacuuming or gardening or any of these different kinds of things because what we do know is that as sedentary behavior increases, so does underlying inflammation, right? And in, in and actually, a blood level of something called CRP goes up as we sit more, and that can be linked to heart disease, right okay? So if uh getting if telling you that you can do light intensity gets you up and moving then absolutely get up and do that, um, and so that's kind of my permission to go shopping today uh it doesn't mean you have to buy anything but just shopping and looking around there all right in the last couple minutes of the show, I want to push out this rather urgent message about norovirus, so norovirus is a uh, virus that attacks the gastrointestinal system. You've probably had it at some point in your life. Often called the stomach bug, stomach flu, any of those kinds of things. We call it viral gastroenteritis. But there is a marked increase in the numbers of outbreaks that are occurring on cruise ships right now, okay? and. and We seem to be cruising more probably because we weren't able to cruise for so long. But there have been 13 outbreaks of norovirus on cruises this year. And that's the highest number since 2012. And we're only halfway through the year right? So that's a significant increase in that. Now, is norovirus typically super dangerous? No, it's super unpleasant. Um, it causes abdominal cramping, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, all of those kinds of things, which if you're cruising, doesn't sound like a good time, right? Um, where people can get into trouble with it is they're really young and are and older folks because they're more prone to dehydration which can be usually is the big problem here. Symptoms are usually only last in a couple days, but you can be contagious for up to two weeks uh, with norovirus. And it is incredibly contagious, meaning only a few little particles are needed to make you sick. And so that Comes to the point of hand washing with good soap and water. Now, I love a good hand sanitizer better than anybody, but hand sanitizer usually does not completely destroy norovirus. So, at least before meal times, be washing your hands with soap and water. Now, that doesn't mean don't use hand sanitizer during other times. There are a multitude of other viruses and bacteria out there that can make you sick that are responsive to hand sanitizer. But if you're going to be touching your face and eating with your hands or any of those kinds of things using good old soap and water for at least 20 seconds, right? You can sing happy birthday twice and getting in all the nooks and crannies of your hand, okay? So in between your fingers, around your fingernails, underneath your fingernails, and up around your wrist. I see folks not get that area real good. All of that with warm water and soap that gets sudsy so that I, in my head, I just picture the sudsy things are just trapping all the germs and washing them away um, and then rinsing well, drying really well, and then using that paper towel to cut the... Um, cut the sink off, because um, you, t- you cut it on with your dirty hands. So using that paper towel um, to, to cut that off there is your best strategy against that. And then if you happen to get ill when you're on one of these cruise ships, please don't continue to um, visit the buffet line uh, at these particular things and seek um, care from the medical um, staff that is on board those things there so that everybody gets to have a happy, healthy vacation there. All right, guys, we are out of time for today. If you did not catch our show in its entirety and you want to go back and listen, you can do that by downloading our podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting app. You can also email me anytime by sending me an email to fit at mpbonline.org. I've been your host, Josie Bidwell. Thanks to our producer, Kevin Farrell, here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit.